Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plates who pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Now, copyright is obviously a subject that gets a lot of attention on TechDirt. Uh, I've been writing about it for over 20 years now, which is kind of incredible to me. Uh, I've read dozens of books about copyright, hundreds of court rulings. Uh, I've debated copyright law with politicians, journalists, and industry execs among uh, countless numbers of internet commenters who are always... Uh, interesting on their on their viewpoints and if there's one thing that i can say about copyright law after all of this time is that there's still always something new to learn uh, or to explore in sort of the ways in which copyright law and especially new technologies intersect partly i think this is because the law itself is constructed in a uh, way that is uh, somewhat um I would say foolish in, in the design uh, and that it is uh, frequently um, done reactive to innovation as opposed to sort of thinking about ways to encourage innovation. In previous podcasts, we've discussed the nature of copyright law in that it is often amended after innovations threaten existing legacy business models and almost always in a way that simply bolts on another piece that magically conjures up uh, new things such as new licenses or something like that, but rarely takes a holistic look at the entire structure of copyright law to see if it actually makes sense in the world that we now live in. And that leads to a, another reason why there's always something new to learn in copyright, and that is that it is incredibly complex. And that complexity bleeds, unfortunately, into all sorts of areas where you might not expect it to go, often due to the very same new innovations that I discussed earlier. And yet, despite all this complexity, I still think that it's quite important for people to have a much better grasp on the ins and outs of copyright law in order to better understand the impact of that law, uh, as well as the impact of potential changes to the law on almost everything that we do, uh, especially online. All too frequently, I see people sort of shrug off the concerns some of us raise about changes to copyright law, in part because they don't necessarily fully see how copyright law will impact key aspects of things that they do every single day. Now, thankfully, UCLA copyright professor Neil Natanel uh, has just come out with a new book that I think should be required reading for those engaged in copyright-related policy discussions. Uh, it is entitled simply Copyright, What Everyone Needs to Know About It, uh, or What Everyone Needs to Know, not the about it, but you can have that implied. Uh, and I highly recommend the book. Uh, if you're already a full-on copyright nerd, uh, you might be able to skip some of the first part of the book, which describes copyrights 
the basics of copyright. But from there, it does a great job of laying out the various battles over copyright that are happening, that have happened recently, and that are going to be happening in the future, who the different players are, and what these different battles really mean. Uh, it also discusses various ideas for a grand overhaul of copyright, while appropriately expressing some skepticism of the likelihood of Congress ever actually doing so. Uh, I've long been a fan of Neil's work, uh, including uh, some of his other books, including one from about a decade ago called Copyright's Paradox, which does a really nice job of exploring the sort of clash between copyright and the First Amendment. And I also recommend that reading that book if you haven't yet. Uh, but uh, Neil is joining us today to talk about this new book. So thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you very much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, I'm going to skip over the obvious question of why did you write this book? Because you say so right in the beginning of the book. And uh, some of it seems to go back to in 2013, the then Registrar of Copyright, uh, Maria Palenti, said that it was time for the next great Copyright Act and listed out some of the proposals that she wanted to see. And your book seems like something of an attempt to um, – to inform that debate as it's been going on over the, the last few years, whether or not Congress ever actually does anything about it. So instead, I'll, I'll ask the broader question of, do you think it's even possible to, to do a copy, comprehensive copyright reform these days? Uh, I think it's very difficult uh, for a number of reasons. Firstly, the industries are, are really quite far apart. Uh, mm -hmm. And secondly, uh, the public is much more involved uh, than it has been in the past. So in the copyright revision of 1976, basically the industries got together, hammered out compromises, uh, and Congress was able to codify those compromises. Um, but today it's, it's, it's both more difficult for the industries to agree and also for, I think mostly for better, for the democratic process, but it makes actual compromise more difficult, the, the public is much more involved. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, you know, and one of the points that you mentioned in the book and, and that we've certainly raised a lot is that, um, you know, the, the supposed or stated intention of copyright law in the U.S. at least is that it is supposed to be beneficial to the public, first of all. Um, and therefore, the public involvement is probably a good thing. Is, is that a fair assessment? <laughs> Uh, yes, I think it's important. Uh, copyright today, I think the other difference is, I mean, the public is more involved, first of all, because it can be, because of the Internet. Um, the public is able to, you know, the social media is able to marshal, marshal public's uh, support or opposition to various proposals, and the public responds to that. But the public is also more involved because today, unlike the last copyright revision in 1976, uh, copyright really directly affects um what we do almost every day, right? Those of us that are on the internet, uh, we live as, as Larry Lessig famously uh, pointed out, we live in a remix culture where we very freely share copyrighted expression, uh, remix it, add to it. Uh, that's part of our everyday conversation. So uh, we as members of the public are much more directly impacted and involved in copyright issues than we might've been uh, in the past. Yeah, and I, and I think that leads to some of the, the sort of clash here, which is that, um, you know, the Internet, I mean, computers in general are giant copying machines. So there's always been some clash between copyright and, and computers. And then you add the network to it, which makes it, you know, 
sort of a giant copying uh, machine across the entire globe. And it's it's not surprising that it, it runs up against copyright in, in, you know, over a dozen different ways, probably. Um, but also that, 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 you know, since people use the internet so much, that any change to copyright law that will then flow back into having an impact on the internet is going to impact the public much more directly than, than it historically has. Um, and so I wonder, um, it feels to me at least, and, and I'm, I'm curious of your opinion, you know, I think especially the, the traditional, uh, I refer to them as legacy industries of the recording industries and the film industries in particular, um, you know, I've gotten the sense that, you know, they spent the last couple decades or the first couple decades of the internet, um, not really thinking about that and and assuming that they would continue to be able to sort of influence the policy in the way that they had over you know the the eight decades prior to that well i think the uh their experience with sopa was a rude awakening for them right so that was several years ago but uh, mm-hmm. with sopa of course the industries uh with support of the copyright office tried to push through uh, you know fairly draconian uh uh amendment to the copyright act which would dramatically increase uh, or require internet intermediaries to to help police and enforce uh, copyright infringement, alleged copyright infringement. Uh, And they were met by a huge pushback uh, from the social media and the public in general. Uh, And as a result, the the bill was dropped. So I think that was a rude awakening for the copyright industries. I think since since then they've realized that uh, the old rules no longer apply. Yeah, and and one of the things, and, and you address this a little bit in the book, but it's an area that that I found interesting and I think is worth exploring is, you know, um, especially after that. I mean, it had happened a little bit before that, but but very much after that, um, a lot of people have sort of set up the framing of the debate around copyright to be Hollywood versus Silicon Valley, um, and sometimes to the exclusion of all other interests, including the public. There, there's this belief that. You know, it's just, you know, whoever is lobbying more, Silicon Valley versus Hollywood. And, and I've always found that framing to be um, unfortunate and inaccurate, um, you know, in part because it leaves out the public and it, it sort of assumes that this is that it is a purely industrial issue, um, which I think is the root of some of the problems with the way the law itself is, has been structured and a bunch of the proposals that have, have come up over the years. Um, but I also think it's it's simplistic in that, you know, Quite frequently, um, you know, Hollywood and Silicon Valley are actually on the so- same side of these things, and that the the boundaries between them are, are very blurry. Um, and so, I know you discuss a little bit of that in the book, but what's what's your feelings there? No, I think that's absolutely right. I, I, I think um, at one point, I think the Hollywood versus Silicon Valley was was a fairly accurate way to describe a lot of the tension and debate about copyright. But more and more, I think I agree with you absolutely that the boundaries are beginning to disappear. They're still there, I think. There still are opposition. But mm-hmm. uh, firstly, Silicon Valley is now more active in sort of voluntarily participating in copyright enforcement uh, through things like, for example, YouTube's content ID, uh, sort of voluntary filtering. Um, mm-hmm. And in addition, more and more Silicon Valley firms, uh, uh, Apple, Google, uh, Amazon, uh are more and more interested in, in moving into the content production space. Uh, so uh, uh, on that score as well, the, the, the distinction between so Hollywood as content producers and Silicon Valley as 
sort of internet intermediaries uh, or on the user side is is beginning to fall away. Yeah, and I, I've even seen um, you know there's you know there are all these different industry groups and associations and sometimes sort of front groups and, and different things. But there there was one that formed recently, which is basically all of the MPAA members and Amazon. Um, and I thought that was sort of an interesting sort of signal in in that very thing, because it's, it's clearly the sort of, you know, production side of Amazon uh, making content for Amazon Prime or whatever. Um, but I was wondering, like, oh, that's kind of interesting, because you would normally associate Amazon with the sort of more Silicon Valley side. And of course, Netflix sometimes plays on both sides uh, as well, and, and finds itself, I think, torn between you know, its office in Silicon Valley and its office in Hollywood. Um, Absolutely. And from the other side, actually, the the, um, the software producers, uh -huh. uh, the software industry, which at one point were entirely on the content side right? That's as, right. as copyright owners, they, they now are also have a, a role in intermediary, right? Uh, so they're they they're on both sides as well now. Yeah, yeah. And I actually think that's that's really interesting too because you look at like, you know, the BSA being the sort of, you know, trade group, um, for the sort of software companies, there's a lot of um, you know heavily sort of uh, dominated by Microsoft and, and Adobe and, and whatnot, and they historically had been you know obviously very strong um, supporters of, of strong copyright enforcement, um, and yet you know in cases where they're now hosting content too, suddenly intermediary liability questions loom large for them. Right. Um, it was right. It was very interesting to see their comments. Uh, on the uh, Copyright Office study to examine the safe harbor, the Internet Intermediate Safe Harbor. Yeah. Because uh, they really come down largely on, you know, sort of what might loosely be called the Silicon Valley side of saying, well, the safe harbor is working fine, right? Uh, yeah. We, we don't want to impose more obligation on Internet intermediaries and content hosting services uh, to enforce copyright. Yeah. And and so, and so and then sort of building on that, where... Um, you know, where does the public play into all of this? I mean, we talked a little bit about how it's impacting them more and more, but, um, you know, how or, or do you see a way for, for the public itself to, to, you know, sort of play a role in, in the future of copyright? Well, it's like everything else. The sort of general unorganized public, uh, it's quite difficult to play a <laughs> yeah. role in policy space. You really have to be organized. So that's why so special interest groups uh, in our democratic process have a you know, much greater influence than sort of the public at large. You know, I, I, I think uh, public interest organizations or organizations that are dedicated to taking certain public regarding positions like the electronic Frontier Foundation, public knowledge, and the like, um, you know, they certainly play an important role. Uh, the American Library Association, to the extent it represents uh, certainly user public, plays an important role. Um, but aside from that, sort of, it's just the general public. What well, really depends on if there's a crisis, like there was with SOPA and and social media, you know, ask for public input and the public respond. Then uh, by by lobbying their representatives in Congress, that can certainly have a have an impact uh, it's difficult so, for the it's difficult for the public at large to be proactive right, right. it's really through uh, organizations uh, that may or may that represent certain aspects of the public that policy can be affected yeah yeah and that makes sense um, it is interesting to see how um, you know different campaigns and 
and different efforts to sort of get the the public organized and and vocal and sort of activated on issues in, in terms of you know which ones work and and which ones don't and sort of how do you how do you get a message across and it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately not necessarily just in the copyright uh, realm but in other realms as well but I think everyone does sort of keep pointing back to SOPA as as that one example and I, I sort of have mixed opinions on that because obviously that was like it was an important sort of landmark moment in all sorts of ways um, but it's also sort of in some ways I think distorted some of the debate you know we hear all the time whenever there's you know this or that issue that comes up um, not not just in copyright but certainly in copyright as well where people just sort of Say like, well, you know, why don't you just SOPA that? You know, it's become uh -huh. this verb. Of, <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, just activate everyone to to freak out politicians, and you'll solve everything. Um, and I don't, I don't find that to be a sustainable way of doing things. And and you know, SOPA was sort of a unique set of circumstances and and conditions and timing and everything that that worked out that way. Um, and and so I wonder how much that's that's potentially impacted the process in in a negative way. Right, it could be, yeah, that that's uh, seen as uh, possible to do that every time, right? Which is, you know, that may, it may have been a sort of unique crisis point that the that uh, public did become involved in. Uh, yeah, I mean, the you know, the benefit there, I think, and again, this is clearly stating my opinion on this, um, you know, is that it, it certainly has made uh, has led politicians to be a lot more careful uh, and recognizing that anything, even small things that they might do on copyright are likely to get a fair amount of attention and interest and they can't just sort of slide by as they um, have done in the past. And so I think that's a good thing. Um, and at least it, it makes them think through some of these issues and be a little bit more cautious than rather than just potentially taking one industry's talking points and putting them into law. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I do think it helps that um, Although, as we said earlier, social media and Silicon Valley are sort of less less um, consistently opposed to traditional copyright industries than they might have been at one time, they still do take very different positions on some of the issues. Um, yep, and have a lot of lobbying power. Right, so um, you know, I think that is another reason why politicians have to take into account. Uh, can't simply accept at least the copyright industry position at, at face value. Yeah. So so let me switch gears a little bit here. And, um, you know, what – and you mentioned some of these in the, in the book. And so uh, in the interest of getting more people to, to not just listen to this podcast but also read your book, um, you discussed some of – some proposals or some ideas for reform. Um, what – in an ideal world, uh, what kinds of things would you like to see? Oh, well, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think, um, first of all, with respect to orphan works, I think that's a, a, sure. know, a, a huge problem. And it's a, as I say in the book, it's really a problem that Congress created. Um, yes. Although, uh, understandably, because uh, Congress lengthened the copyright term in order to, at least initially, comply with burden convention requirements. Um, but there are there are ways of, of uh, sort of backing off that uh, without 
uh, was still complying and, and, with the Berne Convention. And so, so. J- j- yeah, j- just for, for listeners who might not be that familiar, the, the issue with Orphan Works is, in, in brief summary, basically works where it's nobody knows well, if the work is under copyright or who the copyright holder might be, and therefore that you have this sort of paralysis where nobody can do anything with it because they couldn't figure out who to contact to to license to ask for a license or permission or whatever, um, and therefore you and and it's a fairly large number of works that that sort of fall into that category. And as you noted, the reason why that happened was because we sort of extended copyright. Um, massively and sort of left a whole bunch of works that we had sort of no way of tracking who, you know, who might be the copyright holder and in which in many cases there's very little economic value in that particular copyright anyways um, are, are sort of just, you know, non-existent. Um, and, and nobody kind of knows what to do with those works because there's a fear that somebody could discover that they are the copyright holder and then freak out and sue everyone. Right, exactly. Uh, um, until the 1976 Copyright Act, under the previous copyright law, uh, copyright lasted and published works lasted for just 28 years. Right. Um, and then if the copyright owner wanted a, an additional 28 years, the copyright owner had to affirmatively apply to the Copyright Office to renew the copyright. And a Copyright Office study in the early 1960s found that the vast majority of copyrights were not renewed. So effectively, the copyright... Uh, term for the vast majority of published works in the United States was just 28 years in publication. Right. Uh, which meant that, uh, in contrast that to today, where the copyright term is the life of the author plus 70 years, um, there are many, many legacy works where the authors died, the publisher's gone out of business, um, and it really, no one knows who owns the copyright. Um, so that makes it very difficult for... Um, and And... And, and and one element of this that is also Im- important that I think some people don't necessarily understand, which is that under the old regime, you know, as you mentioned, you did have to register with the Copyright Office under the since the 76 Act went into effect. Um, you, we no longer have official formalities, as they're called, uh, in that you have to register. Now, there are reasons why most people or lots of people still register their copyrights because it gives you certain additional uh powers, I would say, uh, mainly with regards to, to suing. Um, but you don't have to, and therefore there are a number, you know, it's not like you can just go to the copyright office and look up the uh, registration of any particular work to find out who is the copyright holder, because that, that might not even exist. Yeah, well, not only that, I mean, since uh, the United States joined the Berne Convention in 1989, um, and now, and the Congress amended the Copyright Act to comply with the Berne Convention, which forbids the imposition of any formalities like registration or even a copyright notice right. to enjoy copyright. Um, there's lots of works that are basically orphaned from the moment they're created because someone creates a song or a video, posts it on the internet um, without identifying who they are, doesn't have a copyright notice, um, and no one knows who owns it, right, from the very beginning, um, which didn't used to be the case. Um, so it's a combination of the far longer term, the lack of a need to renew the copyright, and the lack of the need to register the copyright, uh, record transfers of ownership, or even to claim the copyright by putting a copyright on us that identifies who the initial owner of the copyright is. Um, all of this, which is in Congress's power to, uh, to try to confront, right? Congress really created this problem by the changes it made in copyright law. 
Right. And there are now by estimates of millions of, of, of works that are orphaned, um, which makes it very difficult, uh, I think, primarily for mass digitization projects um, yeah. like Google Books. I mean, it would be just a tremendous boon for uh, for the progress of science and the useful arts, right? The purpose of copyright law, right? <laughs> right. For the spread of knowledge, uh, to have millions and millions of these legacy books available for people to, to use and learn from. Uh, but even Google, you know, doesn't can't afford to investigate uh, who owns the copyright in millions of these legacy books. Um, so, I, yeah, I think I think it really is a serious problem that that should be addressed. And and there have been different proposals over the years to to address the orphan works. None of them have ever gone that far. Um, some of them felt like they were they were moving forward. It's often um, you know, it's sort of interesting because even like. You know, in some cases, it seemed like the big copyright players were fine with with moving on on orphan works legislation, and then you would have things like photographers would come in and freak out and and start making claims about how uh, attempts to fix the orphan works problem was really an attempt to steal all their photographs. <laughs> right, uh, which I have to say, never understood, but somehow, yes, organizations of photographers convinced photographers that that would be the case. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, do, you know, what do, what do you think is the best way to deal with the orphan work situation? Well, I propose in my book uh, that um, uh, to try to sort of recover what the previous copyright regime, mm -hmm. uh, which is that, you know, any entity that wants to, this is focusing on mass digitization in particular, right? So right. any archive that wants to, to provide a, a digital copy of a work, um, that was published more than 28 years ago, right? Uh, should be able to do so, subject to some kind of statutory license, um, and provided that uh, the use to be limited to non-commercial uses. So basically, uh, it would be designed to be create sort of a digital library uh, um, mm -hmm. of works. So I, I would hope that, I you know, it's hard to say with any of these things whether they're politically feasible, right? Um, right. <laughs> but I think at least it, it, it tries to my proposal at least tries to arrive at some kind of compromise where, okay, if a work is younger than 28 years from publication, uh, it would still be subject to normal copyright rules. Uh, but past the 28-year point, um, it would be right subject to this uh, compulsory license regime. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, so one of the things, and, and you sort of, and you you have a uh, small section of this uh, on in the book, um, and you've mentioned like uh, the Berne Convention a few times because that's sort of an important aspect of, of copyright law is sort of the the role that that international agreements play in any sort of copyright reform. Um, you know, we have this sort of weird situation in that you know. There, there are different elements of law being put in place in, in different ways. Um, and, and I've talked about this in, in the past as well, where um, things like the DMCA, which, um, you know, has remained controversial, though for different reasons <laughs> over the 20 years it's been in existence, um, you know, was originally attempted, the Congress attempted to, to pass it and failed. And the people who were pushing for it will now very freely admit that they ran to Geneva uh, and got, uh, you know, basically uh, an international agreement in place that forced the U.S. to then go back and um, create the DMCA in order to comply with their international agreements, which is a 
funny way of making the law in some ways. Um, yeah, and I agree. That's, yeah. that's that's only continued ever since. I mean, almost every trade agreement these days now includes an intellectual property section and has certain requirements. And even, you know, um, for what it's worth, TPP is sort of, you know, uh, mostly dead or it's it's got a different form or whatever in the U.S. is not a part of it. Um, but there was this point where right after uh, Maria Palente had put out her recommendations for the next great copyright act. One of those was was a very, very, very minor rolling back of copyright term uh, in a very, very specific way that basically, you know, effectively gave copyright holders the option of of slightly lessening the copyright term to life plus 50 instead of life plus 70. I mean, you know, very, very minor. Um, and yet at the very same time, USTR negotiators were um, in TPP trying to lock in uh, either life plus 70 or possibly even there was, there was apparently some push for even longer than that to extend copyright. So I'm curious of your opinion of, of this sort of weird dichotomy where you have, you know, Congress can do certain things, but their, their hands are kind of tied behind their back based on all these other international trade agreements, including going back to the Berne Convention and, and, and other more recent agreements. Yeah. So first I have, I say, I, I, I share what I take to be your sense. I, I just find it particularly irksome, um, Although I guess it's understandable, right, that uh, yeah. copyright industry lobbying groups uh, regularly st take the strategy, right, that, that uh, they, they lobby for um, maximal copyright requirements, protection requirements in treaties or trade agreements that the United States is party to. And then they use that to go back to Congress to try to affect domestic policy or they try to lock in uh, copyright provisions in the United States that are quite controversial in the United States. Right. Um, so and that is a regular practice, and uh, they've been successful uh, in doing that on a number of occasions, including uh, the DMCA, uh, anti-circumvention provisions, which I talk about in my book and which you discussed earlier. Um, with respect to the Berne Convention, um, you know, that is the premier multilateral copyright treaty. It's been in effect since 1886, so the United States didn't join it until 1989. Um, I think it would be difficult and a mistake for the United States to, you know, uh, step out of the Berne Convention, right? Uh, mm -hmm. To no longer be a party to that. Um, and the same is true with, of course, TRIPS, which basically adopts mm -hmm. the substantive provisions of the Berne Convention and puts them into inter international trade law. Um, but, but I, I, I do think that, um, just that at, at least at times, uh, some of the provisions of those treaties are sort of touted uh, to impose certain requirements on U.S. copyright uh, that aren't really there, right? So, for example, it's often said uh, that excessive fair use protection would run afoul of what's called the three-step test in, in trips, right. which imposes certain uh, limitations on the exceptions and limitations to copyright that countries can provide. Um, and I think that's just really over, overstated. I, I, you know, I, I don't think that U.S. fair use law uh, runs afoul of the three-step test in any way. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I, I, I think you're probably right. Um, I fear that people – and this may be getting down in the weeds. <laughs> um, but I, I – you know – um, there was a lot with with TPP, for instance, where um, – but uh, thanks to the USTR, the the 
you know, trade negotiator for the for the United States, um, we there was language put into the TPP agreement when it was being negotiated that that sort of mimicked the three step test. Um, and it was sort of the first time in a trade agreement that we'd ever <laughs> agreed to put in, um, you know, what are referred to as limitations and exceptions, which are things like fair use. Um, and I was a little bit nervous that somebody would then try and take those concerns that say fair use go beyond uh, what the three-step test allows and would try and sort of, you know, limit fair use in the U.S. through that mechanism. Oh, I, you're, I, sorry, you're absolutely right. I mean, that there are people that would do that. I mean, again, the corporate industry lobbyists, they have opposed, the, at, at this point, there are, uh, not, for many years, uh, the United States was the only country in the world that had an open-ended exception like fair use. Other right. countries had much more limited exceptions. And as of today, uh, within the last decade or so, about 10 other countries have adopted fair use or are considering adopting open-ended exceptions like fair use. Um, and somewhat ironically, surprisingly, perhaps shockingly, um, the intellectual, International Intellectual Property Alliance, which is a trade organization representing copyright interests, has actually lobbied foreign countries not to adopt U.S. fair use. Right. Um, and the argument that is often given is uh, maybe it you know, violates the three-step test, or they try to encourage countries to adopt the three-step test in the domestic law alongside fair use, because uh, they believe the three-step test does limit fair use. And, so and you're absolutely right. There, there is that position, um, and it's made. Um, I, you know, I, I, to take the contrary position, though, I think when you look carefully at what fair use is, which is a case-by-case -case analysis, right. um, and you look carefully at the three-step test and how it's has been applied. Uh, by international tribunals and domestic uh, tribunals, uh, I, I don't think that a proper reading of either fair use or the three-step test um, right, should find that, that fair use contravenes the three-step test or is limited by the three-step test. And, and, and just can you summarize the three-step test quickly? Because I'm assuming some of our listeners are probably not this deep in the weeds on, on copyright. Yeah, it basically says that uh, exceptions – so the, so the three-step test begins in international treaties that apply to countries – and it tells countries that you, know, you can have exceptions and limitations to copyright, uh, but mm -hmm. they can only be in certain special cases, um, so long as they uh, don't interfere with legitimate interest of the of the copyright owner. Right. Um, so yeah. the question is: Is it a special case? Does it interfere with the legitimate interest of the copyright owner? Right. Right. Yeah. No, it is interesting, and and um, uh, yeah, it, it it's been somewhat enraging to me to see sort of, you know, U.S. industries going elsewhere and saying you can't implement fair use and that would be horrible and it would ruin everything when obviously they've been very successful under U.S. fair use um, all this time. I mean, the, the, the argument that they often throw out um, to, to defend that is that, you know, because fair use is so open-ended and so much driven by, you know, uh, by the courts, um, you know, the U.S. now has this robust set of case law around fair use, whereas any other country would be starting from scratch and therefore you would just be, have this, you know, barrage of, of litigation uh, with no clear rules, um, which feels, feels like a cop-out to me, <laughs> but uh, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, well, I'm actually, uh, an article I'm working on now um, is uh, Israel's one of the countries that adopted fair use. Uh, yes. The Israeli parliament, this is called the Knesset, um, 
basically adopted in, in 2007. It was effective in 2008, a new copyright law, uh, which is includes ba almost a word-for-word -word translation of the U.S. fair use right. uh, provision. Um, so an Israeli colleague of mine and I are uh, looking, doing an empirical study of the first 10 years of fair use in Israel, comparing it with the same 10-year period in the United States. Um, and thus far, actually, we're, we're still in our preliminary findings, but thus far we are finding uh, that Israeli courts are actually somewhat more restrictive and conservative hmm. in applying fair use than U.S. courts. Um, and this even though the uh, U.S. copyright interests through the intellectual, International Intellectual Property Association lobbied the Israeli parliament not to adopt U.S. fair use because they said, well, in the United States we have 100 years of experience with it, you have no experience, there'll be chaos in your country, it'll hmm. open up the floodgates to copying. Um, and if anything, we found uh, just the opposite, right? Uh, yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, that'll be worth worth reading when when you're done with it. Um, and and that leads me to sort of a related question, which which I think we can sort of finish up on, which is um, sort of you know we've we've been talking about international trade agreements and Congress, um, but you know we sort of just brought up in the fair use context the the, the issue of um, case law, and so you know so much of especially in the US, but also, you know, also elsewhere. Um, so much of the way copyright actually plays out, um, you know, in the real world is impacted by, by what the courts interpret the law to be. How much of a role do you think the courts are gonna continue to have in sort of defining the, the sort of boundaries and, uh, and, and purpose of copyright? Oh, I think the courts will continue to have a very significant uh, role. Um... And one of the reasons is, and I, you know, I think this is sort of one of the, the benefits of fair use, but also it, it does raise problems to come back, to take this back to fair use, right? Um, uh, so so um, European countries, for example, rather than having fair use, which leaves a lot of discretion to the courts, have very specifically identified exceptions and limitations to copyright, which are carefully and narrowly drawn in the statute. Right. Um, and one of the reasons why many countries around the world are now considering adopting fair use is because they've realized that with rapidly evolving technology, uh, the le le legislature can't possibly keep up with, uh, with all the changes and the different, different media that are used to um, exploit copyrighted works and to enjoy copyrighted works. Um, so one of the benefits of fair use is that courts are able to interpret these guidelines and apply them to new technological circumstances and, and uses. Um, and a primary example of that, which I talk about uh, in my book, is the Google book search case, mm -hmm. right, where the Second Circuit Court of Appeals held that uh, it, it, uh, it was a fair use, it is a fair use, uh, for Google to make exact copies, to scan millions of books, uh, to put the text in this database to make a searchable database um, uh, for users. Uh, because that's a transformative use. It has an important public purpose, an expressive purpose that wasn't the purpose for which the books were created. Right? Um, it serves as an information location tool. Um, uh, so, you know, you know, I think it's actually a, an important part of U.S. copyright law that courts are able to um, interpret various provisions of the law, even though it's very difficult to do so in many cases, um, to try to adapt it to changing uh, technology. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's, that is sort of, as I alluded to in, in my opening, you know, part of 
what I find so fascinating about copyright and especially is you know, innovation continues to do what innovation does is you sort of keep finding these new pockets um, that sort of test copyright law. And so you see cases that are testing provisions of copyright law that have been, you know, been around um, for 20 to 40 years, depending on when they were inserted into the law, um, but that nobody's really tested them under, you know, based on a, a certain technology. And, you know, I, I, I think of like... Um, the Aereo case is, is one that has bugged me for a while yes, because yes. I think it, it was one in which, you know, this company very carefully um, and very thoughtfully, I think, honestly, sort of went through the law and and various court decisions that had been made and, and carefully constructed a business uh, to transmit television, um, over-the-air television through the wires in a way that, that you know, was designed to work within the the framework of the law and the way the courts, uh, the Supreme Court basically interpreted it was like, you clearly walk so close to the line, you must have gone over it <laughs> or something to that effect. And, right. The court kind of punted and said, we don't really care. Almost, I, I'm exaggerating, but they yes. almost said, we don't care what the law says. We think you're acting like a cable company. So therefore, right, we're going to disallow what you're doing. Right. Um, yeah, I, I've, and I've, I've referred to yeah. it as the looks like a duck test. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, as opposed to like actually looking at what they do and whether or not fit within the, the specific, you know, text of stuff. But, but you know, every year we see, see more cases um, that are doing the, you know, the same basic thing of, uh, um, you know, testing some, some boundary or some aspect of copyright law that hasn't previously been tested. And so... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of important to, to follow how those different cases play out and, you know, eventually how different appeals courts and the Supreme Court rules on them. But, um, it, uh, absolutely. You know. When I say the courts, uh, you know, will continue to have a strong role, important role in, in applying copyright law to new technologies, it, it does not mean that I, that I always think the courts get it right, right? <laughs> right. No yes. means is that the case. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a mixed bag. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, sometimes I think they do get it right. I mean, I think the Google Books case was, was a very, very well done ruling. And then there are cases like Aereo where I think it was, uh, you know, a little bit more questionable. I That's, agree. you know, my personal opinion on that. Um, but, but anyways, uh, Neil, um, Thank you very much for, for joining the podcast and, and, and discussing this and for, for writing the book in the first place. Uh, again, uh, for people who are listening, it's a worthwhile book. It's called Copyright, What Everyone Needs to Know. Um, and it's, uh, it's an Oxford University press. Um, and uh, it's, 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 you know, depending on what level of, of copyright nerd you are or, or not, uh, I still recommend it. Uh, it's, it's a good, quick, thorough read. Um, you know, if you're, if you, if you want to, if you don't understand any of this and, and want to, want to get a, a pretty good survey of everything that that's happening, I think it's worth it. And even if you are deeply in the weeds, uh, it, I think it's a really good, um, book for putting it all into perspective and and raising some points that you probably haven't thought about because I, I know it certainly did that for me so um thank you again for for writing the book and and for coming on the podcast and discussing all this well thanks very much mike it's a pleasure to talk about copyright with you <laughs> great and thanks everyone for listening as well and uh, we'll be back next week Stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the